In this episode of 92Y Talks, Hollywood icon and jazz piano aficionado Jeff Goldblum sits down with Entertainment Weekly's Clark Collis to discuss his debut album, The Capitol Studio Sessions, with his band, The Mildred Snitzer Orchestra. The conversation was recorded on November 11th, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Okay, well, my year is complete, so I don't know about you guys. Uh, That's our show, Drive Safely. <laughs> Uh, my name is Clark Collis. I'm a senior writer at Entertainment Weekly magazine. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming. Thank you to the 92Y, uh, all the folks that organize this. And thank you, Mr. Jeff Goldblum, for being here today. So I've never, uh, other than talking to you backstage, I've never, I've never interviewed you before. I always imagined when that happened, it would be about your acting, maybe a dinosaur would be involved, maybe a fly, maybe the Marvel Universe. We can Who talk knows? about whatever you want. Uh, but we're here mostly uh, to talk about your new album. Yes, sir. And how did that come about? Okay, I'll give you the whole <laughs> <laughs> Well, by accident or evolution, um, I've played piano since I was a kid. I grew up in Pittsburgh and my mom gave us four kids lessons. I was a bad, disciplined, undisciplined student and dreaded when Tommy Emmel would come over to our house. But then he gave me a piece of jazz music, an arrangement of Alley Cat, in fact, and I was like 11 or something, and got this thing of syncopation, what that was, and it was kind of in me. I just loved it. Anyway, started to play. Uh, that's when I started to really practice, got a little better. In Pittsburgh, I, um, I, I'm giving you a very long story. Right, we're, we're, we got nothing but time. We're gonna be here till midnight. In Pittsburgh, I, I started to work with fake books, if you know what those are. You're, are there musicians out there? Are there jazz pe people out there? Nice to see you. Anyway, I started to work with those. And, <laughs> you know, figure out how to improvise a little bit. And then I got it in my mind, although around that time, I thought I gotta be an actor. I, I, I was, um, dead set on being an actor, but I loved playing the piano, and as a kind of a side passion, never careerist or anything about, about it, I started to call up cocktail lounges in Pittsburgh and get these jo jobs. I got a couple of jobs in Pittsburgh when I was like 15. Anyway, cut to New York. I went to New York to study with Sandy Meisner at the Neighborhood Playhouse and launched miraculously into quick work on stage and in movies. Kept a piano around in my p apartment. Um, snuck it in a couple of, it was used in a play that I did early on. Uh, snuck it in some movies and da 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 da. About 30 years ago, I did Buckaroo Banzai in like eight, 83. Thank you. And Peter Weller, who fools around, who's a wonderful uh, trumpet player, he came over, he, we used to get together at my house. And then he did a, uh, believe it or not, a Woody Allen movie. And he said, oh yeah, you and Jeff do that? I know Jeff from Annie Hall and da 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 da. He said, uh, well you should do what I do, get a weekly gig and play with musicians and you'll get better and you'll have a good time. He came back, we started to do that with another musician, first a, just a guitarist. That's 30 years ago, and, and he went off after a couple of years um, of doing that, once a week or something, and did art history teaching and sure. directing. I kept the core group together whenever I wasn't working. We did it, just for fun, under the radar. We played the Playboy Jazz Festival at the Hollywood Bowl. That's when they said, well, you know, you gotta have a name. I sort of came up with this Mildred Snitzer, who was a friend of the family's in Pittsburgh, idea. <laughs> 
She lived to be 102 or something like that. Wonderful woman. And uh, I said, oh, orchestra, we're not really an orchestra. Anyway, it was a bit of a joke, but it's stuck. That's what we've been called all this time. And, uh, and then we've played out and about different places. And for the last several years, this place that you came and that you're invited if you come to California, because every Wednesday we have this residency at a place called Rockwell, like Sam Rockwell or Norman Rockwell. Uh, and, and so here's the answer to the question. The, um, <laughs> ab about a year ago, um, I was promoting Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> and um, I was on the Graham Norton show around your parts. Sure. And, uh, and they said, Gregory Porter, whom I love, is a great singer, is promoting his Nat King Cole album, and he plays with just a piano player. Maybe you want, he's going to be the guest on the show. You want to play with him? Yes, I said. Uh, they sent me the arrangement. I looked at it a little bit. We did it once backstage, and then I did it on the show. His l record label is Decca over there in London, lovely people, Tom Lewis and Rebecca Allen. They saw it, said, hey, maybe Jeff, uh, this Jeff character could do an album with us. And they, they this, this young up-and-comer. Well, you know, and they came to L.A., and they hadn't seen the show. They saw the show. They said, oh, yeah, this could be something. Then they hooked us up with Larry Klein, who produced this album, who's fantastic. And we cooked up this idea of kind of recreating the Rockwell experience at the Capitol Records building, you know, in Los Angeles, if you've been there, you know, a famous place where Frank Sinatra and the Beatles recorded. And, uh, that, and that was footage from, that night, from those two nights where we made the album. And... Uh, and we made it, I'll be darned. And, uh, they, and pretty quickly, that was like several months ago, and then they, Larry mixed it, and, and it's out. I like it very much. <laughs> and so you saw, who'd you see there? You saw Alex Frank on the bass, and uh, John Story on the guitar, and James King on the saxophone, and uh, Kenny Elliott on drums. We added Joe Bag, a wonderful um, uh, organ player, on this that, La that Larry kind of suggested bringing in. And then Till Bronner, who's the best trumpeter in the world from Germany, um, is on it. And then these singers, I don't know if you know, Sarah Silverman and I do a duet on it. She's on it. And, um, and uh, Amelda May, great singer, and Haley Reinhardt. That's the lineup. That's the story. There you go. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like Alan Alda in Crimes and Misdemeanors. Woody Allen says, you know, I, I asked him one question, he used up the two tapes already, you know. I'm a little yakky. And, <laughs> and did you always have it in the back of your mind that you would like to record an album? Not really, no. The whole thing has been kind of for, I had, I still, after telling you the seeds of the idea were just passion, mm -hmm. there was no idea, uh, it evolved, that's what I'm trying to say, and um, with, with, with never a plan or a strategy or a career goal mm -hmm. or vision. It was just something I just love to do. And it changes my days. I'm now, in contrast to my undisciplined early self, I play the piano every day. I get up in the morning before I you know, wake the kids up at seven and take them to school and stuff. I, I play the piano. I run through my hour stuff, and I get better. I feel like I'm playing better every day, and, and uh, I love it. And so, no, this whole thing, no, I, I, you know, I didn't know if anything would happen with it, and I'm thrilled to be doing this. We're about to go to Europe. We're going to play London at Ronnie Scott's and the London Jazz F Festival, and then in Paris and Berlin, so it's just a kind of a blast, you know. And how did you, could you talk a little bit about the songs that are on the album and how you came to choose them? 
Sure. Uh, do you know you have the song? You have the song? I'll tell you all the song. No, I, I will let's remember them. <laughs> so, so some of them, Larry Klein said, I don't want to fool with what you're doing because we were playing a lot of this blue note kind of 50s, 60s stuff and um, jazz that was not cheesy, we thought. We have really great musicians, all of them. And the choices were things that interested them all along through the years that were not uh, cruise ship cabaret kind of stuff. But, you know, Thelonious Monk we play and Charles Mingus and Miles Davis and, and, I, and I love that. And uh, he said, you know, but we make it uh, fun, we think. People seem to have a great time. And oftentimes people who have never been introduced to jazz much. For one reason or other, they come to see it and they seem to have a good time and, you know, we introduce these songs to them. Um, but people have heard the album now and even jazz people say, you know, you're doing, you're doing okay. Anyway, it's kind of fun. It's not, it's not, well, Larry Klein said that yeah, I like what you guys are doing. It reminds me of jazz in some of its earlier iterations where it was fun and social and sexy and kind of lively and a real experience before it very beautifully became at, at, at times intellectual and more investigated and virtuous, what's the adjective to virtuosic? Virtuosic, look it up, I don't know. And, well, you're all smarty pants anyway. If you're here, you're, you're uh, but it, you know, like that, you know what I'm talking about. And um, so he said, it's really fun. So let's, let's try to make that. Anyway, he sort of um, focused our choices um, on what we were already kind of doing and added a few other things that you'll see if you see footage of it. I'm kind of reading on the day because they're kind of new to me. Now we're going to play them on tour and I've, I know them better and I'm, 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 I'm a little more investigated on them. But so it was uh, him. And then finally we, we recorded all of the things on the album plus a few more and it was he who we said please we love everything you're doing kind of culled it down eliminated a few i think a thelonious monk song we uh, eliminated but we we play it live we play lots of things live and and uh, that's how we did it but i could go through let's see there's all kind of st stuff on there herbie hancock that's a herbie hancock song mm -hmm. how do you say it it's c-a-n-t-a-l-o-u-p-e that's how you spell the fruit, right? Yes. Well, so which we call cantaloupe. But a lot of people call that cantaloupe island. I don't know why. <laughs> we should ask Herbie Hancock what he means it to be, sure. but in any case, do you say it differently in, in uh, we, England? We, we can't afford them in England. They, they just, they, we, don't, we don't get those at all. Cantaloupe? We've all got rickets in England. You do? Them. Your teeth look very healthy, uh, that, that, by you, the way. You're the first person to ever, so that makes me doubt your prescription lenses, if you don't mind me saying so. <laughs> true, true or false, here's a quiz. Uh, applause for true or applause for false. I've never had a cavity or a filling in my teeth in my life. Applause for true. <laughs> applause for false. Kind of halfway. The correct answer is true. I've never, I've, I've never. It's true. And we'd never met before this evening. I'm not a, you know, I'm not, never met. not a magician's assistant. <laughs> um, and you mentioned that you were, you were, you were, you know, you received uh, piano lessons as a kid, but what kind of music was around, what were you listening to when you were growing up? 
So my dad, the doctor, was into uh, going to New York for to see plays and would bring back uh, cast albums of musicals. At the time, you know, Fiddler on the Roof and My Fair Lady and Cabaret with Joel Grey and uh, Music Man with Robert Preston, some of the original things. And he'd go to see plays and they'd bring back, you know, and I kind of got some bug, buggy things about that. Uh, but he also got Errol Garner, who was also from Pittsburgh, his new album, I think that he came out with then called uh, Errol Garner Plays Misty. And we put it on the hi-fi. And his favorite song was Misty, you know, and he'd say, listen to this guy. First of all, he's really cool and he's kind of not fancy. He sits, he's short, but he sits on a telephone book to make himself taller. And listen, he, listen how he pauses sort of bravely, my dad would say. And he'd say, listen to this, the way he does these octaves, to and I'd go, wow, he really likes that. And it made a big impression on me. And then I think around the same time, Thelonious Monk was on the cover of Time magazine. And I heard a little bit of that and was like, oh, what, what, what's that? If you know Thelonious Monk's distinctive and unique style. Uh, you know, like that. And at the same time, my brother, my older brother, Rick, um, was a big jazz fan. And he would have in his room and on his stereo uh, the Modern Jazz Quartet and Stan Getz and Astro Gilberto things, which I still love very, very much, you know, Braz kind of Brazilian things. and. Uh, you know, things like that. He had Miles Davis sketches of Spain, I remember he had. And then he got into, this is 67, 68, then he got into countercultural things and had the Beatles albums and Blind Faith, I remember, you know, Stevie Winwood, come down off your throne and leave your body alone. Which uh, Haley Reinhardt, who's on her album, gave me a, 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 a CD that she made, a cover version of a lot of uh, 60s hits, including that song. And I heard it, and I was like, and my son, Charlie Ocean, he's three, a little over three, he sat on my lap in our bedroom in this chair. For some reason, I was introducing it to him, and I started to cry. I have got very emotional. It was so beautiful. I don't know why. And he said, Dada, what, what, what's the matter? I said, this is so beautiful. It's a sad song. I'm, I'm so beautiful. That's why I'm crying. He said, really? And he said, let's hear it again. He wanted to hear it over and over again. And, uh, and now he says, uh, Dad, I want to hear the sad song. He wants to hear the sad song again. And then sometimes I play other things. He goes, is that a sad song? <laughs> so sweet. Anyway. And then um, you mentioned this briefly earlier, but you, you had a spell playing piano in uh, cocktail lounges in, in Pittsburgh as a teenager, which seems an incredibly brave thing cheeky, to do. Cheeky, cheeky thing to do. Yeah. Could you talk about that a little? So here's what happened. I was a strange boy. Um, <laughs> as you can easily imagine. Uh, I, so I was taking these piano lessons. I had this idea to be an actor, although it was secret. And I didn't tell anybody. I was like, I'm going to be an actor. I was, uh, and I was, you know, writing on the shower door every morning, please, God, let me be an actor, and then wiping it off before anybody could find it. But around the same time, I, I don't think I'd been hatching it for too long, if I'm remembering right. It just kind of came to me, and I went into this room in our house that we called the study. It was this paneled room, and anyway, went in there with, with the yellow pages. And I looked under cocktail, and I locked the door. I didn't want anybody to come in on me. More secrecy. Uh, and, then, and then I went through cocktail lounges, A to start at A, and would call up and say, um, 
Hello, this is, uh, maybe I gave my name. Yeah. I understand that, you, uh, that you're looking for a piano player. Most of them would say, no, you've been misinformed, no, no. Some of them would say, well, I don't know where you heard that. We, ha we have a piano down here, I don't know, do you play? Uh, yeah, well, come over and play it and let, let's see. That's how I got a couple of jobs. But I told my parents, hey, I got this job, and I think they must have been <laughs> surprised, drove me to the thing. But then I somehow connected with a couple of lady singers, probably in their, <laughs> in their like, you know, upper teens or early 20s even, and they would drive me to the gig. <laughs> you can imagine that was a magical thing. And with these... <laughs> ah, the theater, my theatrical and musical, my, my performing life has always been a little associated with romantic possibility, you know, even in the highest spiritual way, but also in meat and potatoes, fleshy ways too. You know, I shouldn't be telling you this, but not unlike, not unlike Renee Santoni's character in Enter Laughing, you know, nobody knows that show, but, but I lost my virginity the same night as my first professional job in acting. It was, I fell into uh, the show uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona, which was a musical of the Shakespearean play uh, <laughs> that uh, Galt McDermott, who wrote the music to Hair, had written. And I was watching him right at that summer as I kind of fluked my way into the sh show. I was 18 years old. And uh, opening night, it was, uh, uh, I had never had sex before uh, with anyone else. Uh, <laughs> Plenty of auto-investigation, <laughs> as you can imagine. I won't go further. But, uh, but yes, yes, this 27... Oh, it was here in New York City. It was... She wor worked with the costume department, and I thought she kind of liked me, and it turned out she was separated from her husband, you know, <laughs> and she had a place down on her own in a loft so-called, uh, this is 1971, in what, so Soho, Meatpacking, to Tribeca, some, someplace, downtown, not, not what it was, not what it is now. And I went in the taxi down, down with her. Anyway, I won't go further. That's the <laughs> so, you know, you know, yeah. This show business stuff is, uh, <laughs> I, I have no idea what question I asked to, uh, <laughs> to uh, but it was a good answer regardless. It's so I, I, I have no... Uh... Juicy stuff, yeah. And with these, um, the places you played as a teenager, were they rough places or, 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 you know... I don't think they were rough. No, my parents, I, I think that's what they wanted to check out probably. Right. They, they, they took me to Captain... Bi I can't remember. It was like Captain Billy's... Wheelhouse or something. There was something nautical in the. There was a nautical theme in sure. the in the decoration, <laughs> and I had a piano with a kind of a bar built in around me, and I had my fake books, you know. And I was playing. But you never thought of of making that your professional life as opposed to acting. Nope. Nope. It's Ten years old on, I was like 
actor. That's what I want to be. No, just did this. And still, you know, I'm an actor and thrilled and grateful to be doing more than ever and on the threshold of my best stuff, I do believe, and enjoying it more than ever. Um, but, um, but piano, I do, you know, I'm f busy doing acting, but piano still fills my life as constantly. I play every day. First thing, I may be working on some acting thing too, but I play all the time, so it's just part of my life. And do you feel that, it's, that it, it is an element of your acting as well, that it affects your acting? Yes. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. I'm a humble student of acting and craft, and I taught for a couple of decades in order to learn more, and still am uh, uh, um, um, deeply interested in figuring out how to do it in the best way. And yes, music has always been part of all sorts of things. Well, Sandy Meisner's technique, as you may know, has as its cornerstone improvisation early on in the, in the technical introduction to what it might be and a moment-to-moment -moment, um, presence and attention to the other people with whom you're working and a listening and a opening up and unique finding of your voice and expressiveness in reaction, in response, and in relation, and interrelation to the people with whom you're playing. That describes, as we know, a lot of what happens in jazz, and it still is cross-training relevant to me. Um, there's that. Music, just as you know, I described the story with my son, it does something to me. All different kinds of music plays different notes all over my system, you know. And uh, when I find in trying to uh, identify the best life of a scene or event of a scene, uh, it often occurs to me that there's some corresponding musical uh, element. What else? Um, <laughs> uh, you mentioned. I mean, I, you mentioned that I, I came to see you in the spring. If but we I have to meet, say, that we didn't meet then. No, that's true. Yeah, but, I didn't know he was at Rockwell. But um, if you if you're ever in LA and have the and, and, and Jeff is playing, I cannot recommend this enough. I, I sort of had no idea what to expect. I thought it would just I thought it would just be you playing piano, and I thought after a few songs I'd be like, oh yeah, well that's Jeff Goldblum playing piano, and you know would still have an entertaining time, but would probably be talking to my friends more than necessarily. But it's not that, is it? I mean, I mean certainly you, you, you certainly play with your, with your band, but can you give a flavor of what, what else uh, happens? So here's what happens, and this has evolved too. Early on, we didn't do exactly this, but f from a few years back onward, it became more of a cohesive kind of experience uh, that people seem to be able to consume and enjoy, and I adore more and more, um, that's filled with uh, music and talk. I talk a little bit, and I like to talk, and, uh, <laughs> and, but it's all spontaneous. The music, I don't like to know the set list before, the guys kind of figure it out, and I like to play a game with myself where they start to play usually, or, and then I play along, and that kind of interests me and surprises me. And of course, our, the way we render it is improvisational. We don't really rehearse, uh, you know, we kind of jam that night. Um, and then John Mastro, this, uh, the guy who's the band manager and finds the venues and recruits the band members and arranges the whole thing, 
and worked a lot on this album, um, has become in the last few years the sort of director of when we start a song, I don't do, he kind of alerts the guys when the so song starts, and then when he hands me a piece of paper. And he hands me these pieces of paper uh, that I've never seen before, and, they're, and then I read them cold. Uh, sometimes they're quizzes that I play with the audience, you know, and sometimes it's things that I read and it uh, stimulates a discussion of some kind. Not much serious, but sometimes it has a current events element or lit literature element or movie trivia. We like to play a lot. Early on, sometimes I go, it's not like a show, they don't introduce me. I kind of come, I start talking to people. I like to meet everybody and I kind of take pictures with everybody. You know, it's only 200 people in this club and before the night, so the band takes a break at the halfway point and I stay there and we take pictures with everybody and I like to do it. I like to meet everybody and, and um, and then next day I check my Instagram hashtag Jeff Goldblum too. Because <laughs> I'm kind of an idiot. And, uh, but I like it. And then if I, I'm interested, I check your, your thing and I go on your strain and I see all your pictures like I did you backstage. Yes, I was he like, did. Because <laughs> he showed me the picture that we took at Rockwell and then I said, well, let me see all your pictures. Yes. And then, you know, I started to see him. With and I was mostly clothed. In, in mostly. Yes. Mostly. Uh, and that's it. And so, you know, that's the, that's the evening. And it goes from 8.30-ish. I start talking at 8.30. 9 o'clock, we start playing. I take pictures at 10 after 10. 11 o'clock, we stop. And then we all go to my house for <laughs> pizza. No, we don't go to my house. Then I go home. And would you mind, I, I read that you played with Aerosmith once. Is that, is that correct? Would you mind telling that story? Or rather, maybe Aerosmith played with you. I'm not, I'm not too sure. No, no, no. We've had a lot of good people play with, play with us, drop by our place. But no, I had done this movie nine months with uh, Hugh Grant. Had a little part in it. Tom Arnold was in it. And, and at the, around, around the same time, I think it was early 90s, Jurassic Park had come out, maybe the second one had come out. I hosted Saturday Night Live a couple of times. Aerosmith one time was the musical guest. During that week, I ingratiated myself, and otherwise insert, <laughs> insinuated myself into the musical uh, rooms, and, uh, and, uh, and, and Steven Tyler into that. We, we were palsy, and I, I sort of you know, rehearsed with him a little bit. I played, I said, hey, I, let me see what you're playing on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, making a pest of myself, but then we went to uh, a steakhouse. They all took me to, after the show, we went to, uh, what's the great steakhouse uh, in, uh, uh, um, you know, in New York on the, the bridge? Peter yeah. Peter Lugers went, but Peter Lugers got a big greasy steak and uh, had a nice, uh, nice, anyway, a couple months later, I was doing that nine months movie. Tom Arnold said, hey, I know Aerosmith. Let's go over. I've got a helicopter. I don't know why he had a helicopter. <laughs> I don't even remember where it was. It was some outdoor venue, 80,000 people in some, you know, big stadium. He says, yeah, 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 come on, we'll go. We, we, we went. I, he said, let's stand backstage on, in the wings, and you can watch from there. And, Great, okay. And I'm watching the show. And then toward the end of the show, Stephen Tyler says, hey, Jeff, are you going to come and play with us or what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hold my drink. Here I come. Here I come. <laughs> Piano player says, I said, what are you playing? He said, here are the chords, here are the chords. I said, okay, guy, 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 started to play. I played a song, you know, Steven Tyler, was, it was fun, it was really fun. <laughs> Wasn't that great? I know. <laughs> I know. What a lucky guy. How have I, how have I lucked into all this? I don't know. <laughs> but you look so sweet. 
Look at this sweet audience. Right. You look, is there anybody, I've never been in this theater. You know, I've never come here or seen anything here. And I know you have great people here, but there's nobody, there's a balcony or something, but it's all, this is, it's all full here, right? You look so good. You look so good. So happy to see you. Oh, good, they turned the lights on. Should I take a picture of you with them? Yes, like yes, everybody. yes. Yes. What do you think? Is it too much zebra shoes with zebra socks? Is that crazy? Yeah. Okay. Let's see. How do we do? How do we do this? You got me. Okay. I got you. I got you. What's the matter with me? <laughs> <laughs> so there are a couple of your films that have, oh, thank you so much. Oh, good cards from you, or they can, they can yell out their answers or, or their questions, or we've got, we've got cards. Um, oh, they went, they disappeared again. <laughs> oh no, I like to see them. There, there are a couple of your films that have musical connections, although this, the one I'm thinking of is not really a jazz connection. One of the first films I saw you in being British was a film called The Tall Guy, which I don't think people in, America know as well necessarily as we do in Britain, but it was, it was written by Richard Curtis, right? Richard it was his Curtis first... was his first screenplay yeah. and Emma Thompson's first movie that she did, yeah. And I think it was partly based on Richard Curtis kind of being the stooge, I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way, but the straight man for Rowan Atkinson he, on It was stage. autobiographical, yeah. Well, I depict, uh, you know, that part of his life, yes, with Rowan Atkinson, that's right. And would you, but, but so Jeff plays a, uh, a struggling slash up-and-coming comedian in, uh, sorry, actor in London, and it's a, it's a really nice romantic comedy with, with uh, uh, Emma, did you say Emma Thompson. Oh, she's delightful in it. What a great person she is. She's one of the great people on planet Earth. But at one point, your character lands, the, I guess, the titular role, not necessarily the lead role, but the titular role in a musical. And could you, could you talk a little bit about what that is? Yes, yes. In the movie, Mike, yeah, this actor, he hates the job that he has with this actor, but he finally auditions for, he's, he doesn't think he's right for it, but they say, oh, you're so awkward, and yeah, I think you'd be right for the, the lead part. I play the John Merrick, the Elephant Man, in the musical version of Elephant Man, entitled Elephant, exclamation point. <laughs> and uh, and I, uh, that, 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 that's, the, that's the part I get. Emma Thompson is a nurse, she comes, dutifully, and we start going together. I fall in love with her <clears throat> when she gives me, when I have to go get shots for a trip that I'm taking. And, uh, and she comes on opening night to see me, and it's kind of horrible. It's a cheesy musical, you know. But I'm the elf, I got a lot of makeup on, you know. <laughs> it's, it's well worth, it's well worth yeah, catching, right? I would movie, say, it's yeah. great. Um, so I've got some questions from the audience. I'm assuming this is for you. Uh, Katie and Alex ask, what inspires your style? Well. <laughs> What, what? Zebra. Zebra, zebras, yes. Where are you from? Zeb zebras. Scotland. Where are you from? Scotland. Scotland. Yeah. Is, that, is that how you say it? We actually discussed haggis in the rope wheel. Oh, <laughs> you did? And then you know what I like to do? I like to say, does anybody sing national anthems that are not of the United States? Do you sing the, the uh, Scottish national anthem? Well, the, it's actually the British national anthem. The British one? That's what, in Scotland, that's all they sing? There's no special Scottish? Oh, really? Do you want to sing a little bit of that? Go ahead, you start, we'll, we'll join in.
no, go make a whole, <laughs> really, he needs to change his shirt for it. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh, grief. I picked the right guy. Hey, you know, while he's doing that, you know what I know how to do? My dad's a doctor. Wait, I know how to do this. Wait, just relax, relax. Watch this, relax, relax. Is that relaxed? Did I get it? I got it, I got it. Okay, 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 come here, come here. Okay, here we go. So go ahead, watch. Oh, flower of England, when will we see Jeff Goldblum again? Excellent, there we go. Uh, <laughs> Very good. Not really the national anthem, but uh, that's good. What was, the, what was the question? How did we... What, how, what inspires your style? My then? style, my style. <laughs> zebras, zebras and haggis. Um, well, I've always been strangely into uh, dressing up. You know, I liked clothes when I was a kid. And uh, then acting, my serious... Um, uh, um, devotion to acting led me to build characters not only from the inside out but the outside in. Oftentimes, not only the, after the director, I build a real bond with these very talented um, costume people, as you can imagine, first in the process. And well, no, not not in that way. <laughs> That's an, in the artistic bond, and we really kind of, and they usually know the script very well, and I say, we gotta find the right pair of shoes that make me feel a certain way, walk a certain way, and what to, everything, I'm very tactile, and, and, uh, and so I'm interested in it, and it really is, it means a lot with your, you know, what you're gonna do, to me. Uh, and then, uh, and then, playing piano and, do, and, you know, showing up and doing this thing, I've started to kind of think, gee, what, what's this Jeff Goldblum character uh, best, <laughs> best represented as visually? And uh, about four years ago, I came upon this guy, Andrew Vitero, who had never done celebrity so-called styling before, but worked for GQ and is a very smart guy, masters in art cinema, and as uh, a great photographer, uh, he's, I said, I did this GQ uh, uh, photo shoot and he was there and I started to yak about clothes and I said, geez, if only you could come home and look at my closet just to tell me what jeans to get rid of and I like to kind of prune things down and all that. He did and we started a slow kind of partnership and the last four years, there's not one piece of clothing that I used to have that I now have. We've sort of gotten other things and we like, uh, uh, I enjoy working with him and making these outfits you know, uh, and get my picture taken. Yeah. Look at that, damn boom. I like these pants. These are kind of stretchy. Look at this, dots. I like it. <laughs> uh, this is a question from Andrew. What advice would you give your 30-year-old self? Very interesting. Ooh, my 30-year-old self, well, that's an interesting choice of, I mean, I could talk to my six-year-old, my 12-year-old, my 18-year-old self, but my 30-year-old self, well, I had still much to learn, as I've still got much to learn, and around 30, oh, I would say, <laughs> I would say, you know, generally keep uh, exploring avenues which will lead to your uh, self-trustfulness generally speaking. <laughs> and specifically, if I could give you any advice, cut out any, because um, I've now done it, like about only four years ago or five years ago, cut out any performance enhancement, um, uh, you know, uh, help. 
uh, I, was, I was having um, coffee. I know most people have coffee, and the trainer says it's good for you, even before a regular, a regular day in your workout. But I was using it as kind of, um, oh, I'm going to do a, I'm going to have to talk to these people. I better get a little jazzed up, and I got to have some energy. That was still a kind of a vestige of a mental crutch that when I jettisoned it, it did, I believe, something good for me. Incrementally, along with all the other things I've done for the last few decades, um, but it was really good. I just come now as is. I try to get a good night's sleep. I, I came right from the airport to here, but I kind of worked on getting my sleep in the plane. I slept and had a nice nap in the plane. Uh, so I, I would tell him, you know, don't, don't worry. You're fine. You're fine. You've got you've, everything you've, you need to do, you've got in you. You've got the resources to do it in you. Uh, you know, solve the problem. Even tonight, you know, what's the energy here? Who are you? How the energy is great. It's great. <laughs> but, you know, this is what, this is the kind of thing you have to kind of solve. How do I, how's the energy in me? How do I kind of navigate this so it goes well? I don't want to let myself down or let you down, you know, and, and, uh, and but I go, whatever it needs, I, I'll just try to put some effort into it and see if I can trust that I can solve it the best way I can. And if I can't, that's, it just has to do, you know. Isn't that, isn't that, that that's what I would tell, it's, it's still interesting to me. And of course now all these, you know, advice giving and all that stuff or how I can contribute. Well, I like teaching, you know, I do like teaching. And now I've got this interesting opportunity of having these two boys. And boy, I know many of you must have children. That kind of focuses your thinking and um, turns your half-baked ideas, turns the light on some of your half-baked ideas and, and you want to, you're motivated to kind of enhance them, uh, you, you know, so I am at this point. Uh, thank you so much. And this, I think this is from Vera, although I guess it could be from Vern. Is this Vera or Vern about the spirit animal? <laughs> Vera, sorry, I do, I sorry. Where's I do Vera, apologize. where's Vera? Hi, Vera. Hi, Vera, hi, darling, hi. Nice to see you, Vera. Uh, Vera, asks, Vera asks, what do you consider your spirit animal? Uh, clearly, she says whatever it, it is, she needs to tap into that. I would say, as per my last question, you tap into the Vera, Vera animal. Forget my animal. You've got your own animal that's living with inside you. And I'm sure you've already found it. But you know, if you haven't, just keep exploring that. Um, <laughs> me, zebra, zebra, zebra. Um, no, I don't know what my spirit animal, although I love animals of all kinds. We went to the, we went to the zoo. We took the kids to the zoo um, and uh, we saw some things, but one of the first animals we saw were, were meerkats. You know meerkats. Well, they really struck the imagination of Charlie, particularly, and now River, who's 18 months and does whatever Charlie does, really. But you know, Charlie has been acting out meerkats, and he makes his eye, and he goes around that, and he kind of prances around. It's just excruciatingly adorable. And then, and then for Halloween, we made him up as they wanted to be meerkats. He got some black fingernail and toenail polish and got some whiskers, and then uh, uh, Emily's mom, of French from, uh, who lives in Toronto now, made them this, went to the store and made them these homemade kind of fuzzy, furry, great costumes. They were meerkats, you know. Anyway, that's their spirit animal currently. I don't know, what would I be? What would I be, a dolphin or a... <laughs> what do you think I'd be? Maybe a zebra. 
You say zebra. You say zebra. Isn't that what zebra? We say zebra. We say zebra. Yeah, but zebra. Nothing wrong with zebra. Yeah, and zebra. You also say zebra. Zebra. Um, Aria, what a lovely name. Aria asks, what was your favorite acting role? Where is this Aria of whom you speak? Alejo. Alejo, what did you say? Aloha, what did you say? Alejo, hi. Hi, Aria. My favorite acting role? Well, you know, I lo- I've been very lucky. I've done a lot of stuff at this point. I've had a lot of... Good movie. You know, I loved working with Robert Altman early on. You know, Nashville is a movie that's interesting. He was a great teacher and a wonderful, artful, uh, masterful fellow. Wes Anderson, I love very much. These three movies I've done with him, you know, Isle of Dogs and the Grand Budapest Hotel and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. I love him. Um, I liked working with Taika Waititi on Thor Ragnarok. He's really brilliant, and he encouraged me to improvise. A lot of that stuff is just uh, fooling around, and we improvised a lot. Since then, I did a movie that I was telling you about that um, Rick Alverson directed. You may not know it unless you're really a a connoisseur of the art alternative movie. He did two things called the comedy. Who's that? That's my friend Medi. I used to work with her. Medi? Medi? M-E-T-T-I-E. Medi. Hi, Medi. Beautiful glasses, beautiful frames. Hi, Matty, you look very stylish. So you know, he said he knew this movie, so you saw the comedy with Tim Heidecker, but did you see Entertainment uh, that Rick Alves, I loved that. His, he's only done two movies, really. His last movie called Entertainment, uh, Michael Sarah was in it and John C. Riley, but um, it's on Netflix. Yes, yes, Entertainment. This is in the same tonal vein. It's kind of, you know, I love the movies of P.T. Anderson that are sort of American critiques, the master and, um, and there will be blood and sort of metaphorical and poetical and ambiguous and musically strange and unexpected uh, and disturbing and provocative. And uh, this movie is called The Mountain. It was in competition at uh, the Venice Film Festival. It's gonna be shown, I hear tell, at Sundance uh, upcoming. And um, it's with me and Ty Sheridan, wonderful Ty Sheridan, whom you know. and. Um, it's about briefly, I liked it a lot. It's a, I play a character based on the real life guy, Walter Freeman, who pioneered lobotomy in America in 50, now in the 40s. Uh, and then we, we depict him in, or a character based on him in 54, now fallen on hard times. Lobotomy is much. <laughs> Uh, discredited, but he still has a chance to go around the Pacific Northwest in the rainforest up there with his new pal, uh, Ty Sheridan, who's taking pictures of him and stuff, and going on drunken binges and womanizing and going to institutions and asylums and teaching people how to do it quickly by poking their, through their eyeballs and, you know, doing that. It's, uh, it's uh, gruesome, but it's, it's, and then there's a, and then Denis Levant is in it, this wonderful French artist, cinema artist and actor, and Udo Kier is in it, uh, whom you know, and it takes a weird turn when um, we run into uh, Hannah Gross and her father, Denis Levant, who is the occult leader uh, that, that is leading people to go to Mount Shasta, around Mount Shasta and do dancing, you know, Sufi dancing and uh, spiritual, uh, uh, you know, odyssey work. And um, yeah, wait, what was I gonna say? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and he, you know, it's, it's, it's the myth of the Lemurians, you know, and the lost uh, continent of Atlantis and all that stuff. Anyway, it's all tip of the iceberg. It's not, not, not spelled out for you. It's a poem, you know. I kind of love it, you know. Uh, uh, you know. It may not be everybody's cup of tea. Um, and just out of my own personal curiosity and being British again, early in your career, you worked twice with Michael Winner uh, in, um, for Death Wish, which a lot of people know about, and then The Sentinel, which is one of the craziest horror films of all time. Um, he was certainly in Britain when you were this, Michael Winner was this larger than life character who eventually became more of a restaurant critic than a, than a director. But what, what, what was that like? Did you ever meet him or not? I did not, no. Yes, that was my first movie ever. And the first movie I ever auditioned for in 1972, this was, or three, I got sent up for this thing and it was a bad guy. We were one of the three in Death Wish. We were one of the three guys who kill Charles Bronson's wife and rape his daughter in this opening scene that sends him off, this, off into this spree. And I was like, oh, I'd just been studying. I was like, yeah, I could do, I could do something <laughs> like that, I think. And I auditioned three at a time, a bunch of at the Gulf Western building and, uh, up here in New York, and we, you know, went in and kind of, you know, mimed things. There were no women there, and we kind of, you know, menaced, menaced them. I got the part, and Michael Winner, yes, he gave me that part. Excuse me, I'm a little gassy. Uh, <laughs> the, um, the Michael Winner, he said the very first shot that I ever first did in a movie the three of us were skulking up some stairs you know, on the Upper East Side in their building where we'd found their address at uh, Diagostino's and we're skulking up and, uh, and they're setting up the camera shot. I didn't know anything about this sort of rehearsing the shot and we were, okay. But he yells at me, he was known as an abusive sort of screamer and he picks me out in the first rehearsal for the first shot that I've ever done in a movie. He yells at the top of his lungs, Goldblum, start acting now. <laughs> I don't know what I wasn't doing, but I burned with shame and I... But you know, in the ensuing years, I realized it was not the worst piece of direction. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty good. It's not rocket science, just start acting now. That, uh, that's that's kind of it. Anyway, Michael Winner. Uh, that's uh, fantastic. I have a question yeah. from uh, Antonio, who asks if, if you would ever, uh, if you would like to score a film. Is that something that you would be interested in? Who's this Antonio? Where, where are you, Antonio? Hello, hi, Antonio. Hi, Antonio. Um, oh, you know, me and music, like I've said, I have no grand plan or little plan or any plan. You know, uh, it's just happened. Who knows what'll happen now? No, I, my plan is to act and, you, you know, I, I don't know what'll happen. But I did direct this movie. I directed a short movie, because out of my teaching, in fact, uh, whenever it was, a while, quite a while ago, uh, I wanted to kind of experiment, and somebody gave us money to do something and with the students and with the addition of Rod Steiger at the time and Julie Harris. We put together this 37-minute movie, and it got nominated for an Academy Award that year, believe it or not. And, um, but I was very involved in every aspect of it, and I really enjoyed being involved in the scoring of it. Didn't oh no, I did play on one little track. Because my friend Benny Wallace, a jazz, I used a jazz score, kind of inspired by Thelonious Monk, particularly by his song, Ugly Beauty, that Benny re-composed something that sort of was reminiscent of that. 
and uh, I think I played on, on something. Uh, anyway, uh, I like doing the score for that. And music means a lot to me in movies. Like I said about The Mountain and P.T. Anderson's movies, a movie can work for me. There's no rule, you know, it's, it's not, there's no it's empirical criteria. It's just my own personal taste. So, but if the, if the music goes wrong for me in a movie, if it's too sappy or tells you too much or too manipulative or too middle of the road or too expected, those are kind of my thing. I'm kind of done and uh, you know, it can really be a red flag and a deal breaker. Um, likewise, if something comes on that, uh, that I think is, uh, that really surprises me, I, 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 I'm interested. And you know, I keep watching, the, um, speaking of Rod Steiger, um, I've watched many times over the years on the waterfront. And I realize that I'm very moved every time I see it. But, but in, for instance, the cab scene, you know, they're acting up a storm, Brando, you know, iconically. But the music, in that scene is the thing, is one of the things that, that, oops, sorry, <laughs> is the thing that really gets me, that the music can do something to you that nothing else can, and you know who did the score? It's the only mo movie he ever scored. Who scored that movie? Leonard Bernstein, that's right, that's right. It's beautiful, beautiful. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I do have time for a, for a, for a, a couple more questions. Uh, you mentioned watching on the waterfront. Um, I think it's Ryan asks, "What's the last show you binged watched on Netflix?" Ooh, who's Ryan? Where's Ryan? Ryan, I apologize if it's not. Ryan, there's Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Um, what did I binge watch on Net Netflix? Mm -hmm. Well, or I guess anything. Really. Or anything. Unless I saw he's being paid by Netflix to answer that question. I, question. I, don't I know. saw every episode of Breaking Bad. Love, was was crazy crazy about Breaking Bad. Um, saw all of it was because it was a multi episode. Saw all of uh, Wild Country, mm -hmm. the documentary on uh, the cult, uh, kind of interested me. Uh, what else did I see? Binge watch, which means it needs to be a series. It needs well, to be you, a I think series. I think whatever you, interests you is going to interest these people, to be honest with you. I, I, I sorry, I don't mean these people. I mean the, the people who are the good people who are here. I like to watch. I like to watch the TV. But now that I'm um, my phone isn't here. Now that I'm addicted, like everybody else, and try to curtail it because we don't let let the kids have any screen time yet. I think it's probably a good idea. No, we, and we don't even want them watching us, see, catching us on our phone much. They don't watch television or anything like that. I've broken my, so I see everything, but I see everything for my own entertainment on YouTube, and I like it the size that it, I don't even have an iPad. I like everything on the phone. I watched lots of things there, and I, I watch, today I was watching, uh, there's so much you can see, you know, Sam Harris, there was a, there was a conversation like this between uh, Brian Greene and Sam Harris that I'm halfway through on the, my way to the plane, but I like a lot, lot of stuff like that. Um, I'm about to do this National Geographic series, so I've seen One Strange Rock and, uh, and uh, all that stuff. I like that because I'm about to do 12 episodes of that. But what I put the TV on for these days is to go to my iTunes, unless I'm watching the Steelers play football, or, or and they're doing pretty well now, or, um, or the news, you know. But 
<laughs> I, but I catch the news in just more discreet, you know, just, you know, chunks on my iPhone, and and you know, can can uh, I don't just keep it on all day. Where, you know, can't do that anymore like I used to. So what I do. On the t t besides those two things, is I turn on iTunes and I get, um, particularly these days, Filmstruck, which is going out of business, I'm, I learn, you know, in a, a little bit. But Filmstruck is great because uh, there's the Criterion Collection and I'm catching up with movies. So, you know, I had never seen, there are movies I'd never seen before. I'd never seen Stalker, the uh, Tarkovsky movie before, which had been highly recommended to me. Watched that in dribs and drabs every night and then saw documentaries on it. You know, so that, that, that's the stuff that I'm watching now. What are we watching right now? We're halfway through some, something on Filmstruck. Wait a minute, on Filmstruck, Emily and I do it at night. So, something, oh, we just finished something, anyway. Um, <laughs> these are the last couple of questions. They come from Christopher Casella. Uh, Kas Where? Is it Casella, is it? Christopher. Hello, Christopher. <laughs> And I think these are, these are good questions to end on. Um, what do you consider the most challenging point of your career? And what do you most want to be remembered for? We could all go at any time, we know that. And I'm closer now to the end than the beginning, we know that. Um, although maybe I'll be 102 like Mildred Snitzer. Um, well, the most challenging point, the most challenging point. Well, getting started, you know, I mean, it was miraculous how it started, Christopher. You know, like I said, I auditioned the first, I fell into that two gents, two gentlemen of Rona thing before I even had auditioned for anything. I fell into, which was a big hit, I went to Broadway with it and it won a Tony. I, Death Wish I, was the first thing I auditioned for. So that went very well, but I really, was justified in feeling frightened and that I didn't know what I was doing because I didn't really. I had a flair for it, let's say, and, a, and an enormous appetite. But Sandy Meisner had said, I took it to heart, but maybe I took it the wrong way too. It made me anxious. He said, it takes 20 years of continual work before you can even call yourself an actor. And then a lifelong, if you're lucky enough to still be at it, uh, you know, um, work to keep, keep, keep growing till the very last moment. Well, that's great, and, and I've taken that to heart, but during the first 20 years, I guess I did feel, I hope I can do this, and as you know, just professionally, every job you get at that time, getting a lucky foothold felt like an audition for continuation, which I guess it is, and so it, I felt, you know, and not like music where I was just doing it kind of for the fun of it, I felt that I needed to make my way, it was the only way to make my way, you know, I didn't have anything else I wanted to or could do, so I was, this must work, and I was determined and romantic about it, you know, wildly romantic about it, but determined, and but, but pressured, so early on, uh, and I had a, had a susceptibility toward a kind of anxiety anyway early on. So I, I'd be lying if I didn't say that early on there weren't moments of, of supreme excitement and delight, but also terror and uh, horror. <laughs> and I would forget coffee these last few years. Early on, I would do shocking things to myself I won't reveal. No, we can push the time. If we can, we, 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 we got. In order to feel worthy to do this, 
you know, and to try to do it the best way and to somehow, you know, do it really, really skin the cat, do it well, uh, which seemed beyond me or, you know, not within my power, et cetera. And it was, it was still out of my, you know, I still was tr trying to figure out how to do it. So that's, I, that was challenging. There were moments of uh, my God in heaven. Um, I, I was in an acting class in, when I first went to Los Angeles in 74, four years after I spent the time here and with a wonderful teacher, Peggy Fury, and I overemphasized preparation too in the same vein as all this other stuff. And um, I was about to do a scene in class and I went down on the streets in La, on La Brea, uh, a kind of a business street, and I was pacing up and down the street and kind of pounding myself on the chest hard and I don't know what I was doing, talking to myself or just saying to myself, and a police car pulled up. <laughs> They had been notified that there was a strange behaviorist in the neighborhood, and they said, pull, pull over, Johnny, you know, and uh, what's going on? Oh, officer, I said, I'm acting, and I'm, <laughs> I'm just preparing to, well, let's see, take us up and for the class. Oh, no, please, that'll embarrass, <laughs> don't do that, please don't do that, interrupt the class, come on, let's go. And uh, knock, 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 uh, Peggy, it's Jeff, I've got the police, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Is he in your class? Yes, he is, I'm so sorry. Okay, there you go. Anyway, you know, uh, just, to, just to, it came to mind, just to show you a little bit, I could tell you many other stories, but a little bit of how I sort of tortured, could torture myself visibly, conspicuously, you know, much to the alarm of others, you know. Uh, early on, I would say that was challenging, that I made it out, that I survived out of that, that I kept doing something. And I, and I look back at some things and go, I could have done better. I could have done better if I'd done it now. You know, uh, there were some challenging times. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.